When we sat in darkness at the beginning and quietly whispered the words of that song, it reminded me of when John, husband, not rector, and we were in a church that was very engaged with the persecuted church. And at that time, it is early 1980s, the persecuted church as we saw it was in, in Russia and the Eastern Bloc, Eastern European Bloc, all communist states. And in those countries, uh, the oppressor was the state itself. Hence the need for the church to be underground, meeting in secret. And there are many countries today where that is how the church has to live and have its being. Uh, and in those days, I didn't go so much. I had young children. We both had young children. But John went and visited believers in those countries. Uh, so we knew firsthand what it was like, what their daily reality was like. This time, it was my turn to go. But, you know, we can sometimes think about the church that is persecuted as if they are the abnormal ones. It's terrible what happens to other people. But actually, Jesus told us that we would be persecuted. Paul was writing from a context in which the church was constantly persecuted, where the early believers, many of them, lost their lives. And actually, it's us that's abnormal in that we are not living under that kind of persecution, though we have other enemies, other subtleties, that oppress us and keep us from living in the fullness of God. A few years ago in this church, uh, we were quite engaged with Open Doors. And I think some of that engagement has somehow, somehow seeped away. Um, and I do believe that as we in the West, or the global North, engage with brothers and sisters who are persecuted, it does something for us. It does something to our spiritual DNA if we can really engage with the persecuted church. I had no intention of going to Nigeria, ever. It was certainly not my idea of a place for an autumn break. But I'm a trustee for a small charity called HEART, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust. And we work to support minority groups in places where the big organisations, for whatever reason, don't or cannot go. Nigeria is number 12 on the world watch list. And we have partners in Nigeria, and I'll come to that in a moment. And the purpose of our visit was to meet with our partners and hear their stories, hear how we can support them. And in that visit, we had the immen immense privilege of, see, of meeting bishops, clergy, um, rural pastors, Christian and Muslim community leaders, military officers, parliamentarians, a whole raft of people. But they all told the same story, and they all wanted us to tell their story. Uh, which 
I intend to do a little bit of tonight in the time available. So tonight is, is not about telling you about another charity, and it's not about telling you about my visit. It's an attempt to tell you something of their story. Um, if we look at the map, um, okay, where Open Doors are working, they're working in northern Nigeria up in this area here. Um, the, the, the guy that was speaking on the video was in, in Borno State. Also in Borno State, that's where the Chibok schoolgirls um, were abducted by Boko Haram. And I guess everybody here has heard of Boko Haram. If you follow the Western media, um, you'll hear that the government are great, making great inroads and uh, they're winning the victory against Boko Haram. Let me tell you, it is really not that simple. And yes, they have pushed Boko Haram back a little bit sort of into this region um, rather than all around here, but they're there, they're underground. But they're not the only extremist militant Islamic group that is persecuting the church in Nigeria. And where, where our partners are, it's in where are we? this area here. Our partners were in Jos, in this central plateau state. And we also went up to visit partners in Bouchley state up here. And we also wanted to go into these states here, but we were not allowed to because it was considered too dangerous to go. Right across this kind of central region, there's another whole um, movement of insurgency uh, called the Fulani, who are every bit as deadly as Boko Haram. Um, and there are other groups as well. But so in, in the whole of the central and northern belt of Nigeria, there are militant Islamic extremist groups that are seeking to turn Nigeria into an Islamic state. So the oppressor is not the government, it's Islamist, Islamic fundamentalists. But the government is either unable or in some cases unwilling to protect its people against insurgency. And many of these insurgents carry on with impunity, killing, massacring and destroying Christian communities. Now, just before we go on, I would like you to just stop for a moment and imagine. We have the next slide. I can't, don't seem to be moving forward. No? No? Well, while we're getting the slides back, here we go. Yeah, I would like to imagine that when you set out to drive to church, you have to allow an extra half hour for your journey because on the way you will encounter numerous roadblocks to check whether you are a terrorist, whether you are carrying weapons. I would like you to imagine that when you get to the green, it's barricaded off. And right across the road, at the entrance to the green, there are big spikes in the road and barricades. On either side of these barricades, there are men with weapons. There are um, military men with AK-47s. And they are checking you before they allow you in to come to church. And then I would like you to imagine the unthinkable. That a few Sundays before the start of the morning worship, somebody has driven a vehicle 
into the car park at the front of the church centre, where families and children were coming to meet for their Sunday groups. And it's in that car there was a suicide bomber, and that bomb was detonated. And the children and the parents on that forecourt were blasted into eternity. Just imagine that for a few moments. Because that is the reality of what's been happening in Joss. And just down the road from where I was staying, and actually it was a Catholic church, that is exactly what happened. A vehicle drove in as people were coming to church. There were some young teenagers at the gates of the church just welcoming and checking who was coming in. And a car drove in and it blew everybody up. And that night, people were in that church worshipping God. And I would like you to ask yourself, as I have asked myself, if that was our lived reality, would I be here tonight? If that's what it could cost me to come to church. And in Joss, where we've been staying, they have undergone years since the early 2000s, of this kind of persecution of Christian groups, Christian believers. And in Joss itself, uh, the city is divided up. There are Muslim communities and Christian communities. Because as Boko Haram had got a grip on the northern part of Nigeria, any of those who were Christians fled south into the central belt into Joss and the areas surrounding. And there, but there they became a target for all these kind of terrorist attacks. And I was really pleased with the way Chris read that reading because he really emphasised that phrase, we do not lose heart. And the one thing I found amongst those who are true believers, and obviously within a country like Nigeria, you've got Christian communities and Muslim communities. And within those Christian communities, there are those who are nominal Christians and those who really have been born again and discovered what it is to know the living Jesus and to serve him whatever the cost. But my experience living for a week and walking in the shoes of those believers was their testimony that all, despite all of this, we do not lose heart. And four weeks ago, I was in the home of uh, the Bishop of Joss, Archbishop Ben Quashi. We, had a, we, we ate together, those of us who had gone out, and uh, many, a number of his clergy and other people, and some of his children and his wife, and we ate together and we shared together and we prayed together. And the charge that he gave us was this, to tell their story. And the other charge he had was, we received our faith from you. The gospel that we live and die for came from England. And he said, beg them not to throw it away. And sometimes I think, and this, this whole week away has been for me an enormous privilege, but very, very challenging as well. And sometimes because we're not persecuted, because it's so easy to be a Christian and carry on with life as if there hadn't been a life-changing transformation taking place. 
And somehow the tide of secularization nibbles away at us and erodes our faith. It would be so easy to throw it away. I cannot begin to tell you how humbling it was to be continually thanked for being there. When for me, it was something that the Lord had, I felt, prompted me to do and to go and to hear and to meet these people. And to be honest, to take me out of my comfort zone. You know, you reach a stage in life where you can sort of carry on and you learn to cope with life's difficulties and the things that drag you down and you develop strategies and you draw on the wisdom that you've gained over the years. And sometimes, whether we're young or whether we're old, God has to take us out of our comfort zones and challenge us afresh. This is, this is Bishop Ben embracing one of our team who's obviously been out there before. They're people who feel alone in terms of the worldwide church. They feel that Western governments have abandoned them. They feel that the Western church has abandoned them. There's propaganda put about that what is going on in Nigeria is not about the persecution of Christians, but it's about intertribal disputes and land disputes, and we shouldn't interfere. But I tell you, I'm firmly convinced it's about a strategy, a determined strategy to eradicate Christianity and set up an Islamic state. So he said, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for coming against the advice of your government because it's dangerous here and they will not help you if things go wrong. That was really encouraging. Thank you, he said. And he spoke about hearts, the, the charity that I'm involved with, uh, which we do supply aid, but we also have avenues for advocacy and for telling their story. He said, thank you for speaking out about what is done in the dark. Now, they say that behind every man, there's, every good man, there's a good woman. Um, I don't know about that. I think these two are really equally yoked. But this is, this is Gloria, who we met. This is the archbishop's wife. Her father was apparently a polygamous soldier and she was born in a ditch in a remote village in northern Nigeria. She was such a sickly baby that her mother didn't bother to give her a name. And it was only because a, a, a Fulani herdsman had said to her, she must have a name and he called her Sunday because that was the day of the week that he met her mother. And it was only on her baptism that Gloria took the name Gloria after a woman that had helped her to find her Christian faith. She met Archbishop Ben at Theological College. He was a pastor in remote villages and they served God together. Eventually, his ministry was recognized and at quite a young age, he became the bishop in Jos. Very similar to here, you might think. Except that on that journey and on their journey, they have had their home burned down on more than one occasion. They have lost all their possessions on more than one occasion. They have been held at gunpoint. And when Archbishop Ben was in England, 
Insurgents came to their home looking for him to kill him. And when he wasn't there, they gang-raped Gloria, broke her legs and put her in hospital. If that was me, would I still be carrying on in ministry, I asked myself. Would I still be following the call of God? Would I really? Archbishop Ben said of his wife, the thing with Gloria is she wants to save the whole world. Still. He was the one who said, the madness of my wife will ruin my retirement. There will be no retirement. They have adopted 50 orphans. Okay, they have a fairly big place. You know, being the bishop, he's got quite a big house with a big compound. They have adopted 50 orphans, war orphans. Gloria has set up a school for 400 children. She gets up at four in the morning so that before school, she can cook their meal, the meal for these 400 children. Because for many of them, that will be the only meal they get that day. I'd also like you to meet this lady. Good old style missionary. Church Mission Society went out to Nigeria 30 years ago. None of this short-term mission malarkey. You know, it was, it was for life. It was a calling for life. She too has been held at gunpoint. But it's a place of no return. One of Christ's unsung heroines. She's the PA to the bishop. But in uh, 1991, she set up a seminary. This was just as, you know, before all the trouble started. A seminary for training young pastors, young Anglican clergy and health workers. Those pastors, some of them are younger than many of us here. Some of them are a little older than some of you here. But when they go to theological college and they train to become priests, it's not a choice of, you know, do I go to a rural area or a suburb or an inner city? Many of those know that they will be going out into rural parishes where they will not know if each day will be their last. Because still, despite what we may hear on the BBC website or read on the BBC website, churches are still being burned and villages of Christians are still being destroyed. And I wonder sometimes, Archbishop Ben, his kind of mantra is, if you have a faith that's worth living for, it's a faith that's worth dying for. And I wonder sometimes, do we preach enough a gospel that involves taking up our cross to follow Jesus? We so want to include people, don't we, and make them feel welcome. And I'm not knocking that. Of course we must. And we must show them the welcome of Jesus. And we must be hospitality and draw people into a loving community. But do we preach enough that actually to really be a Christian we are called, Jesus said, you know, to take up our cross?
What does service look like? What will it look like for us? I'd like to introduce you to this man. Canon Hassan John. 52 with the energy of a 25-year-old. His mother had the good sense to give him both a Muslim and a Christian name, and that has come in very handy. He's one of the bishop's right-hand men, an entrepreneur, a risk-taker, passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's a price on his head. He came home from ministry one day to see painted on the wall of his house the death threat against him. His wife here, she said to me, he doesn't tell me everything he does, so I don't worry too much. Each day could be his last. His emotional heart, you might say, um, he's fearless, but he's not. These people are flesh and blood like you and me. They're not fearless, but they confront their fears and follow the bidding of the Lord Jesus through those fears. During the time of the Troubles, when they were at their height, when churches were being attacked by gunmen and suicide bombers, he was one day sitting in the compound outside his church asking God what he should do to protect his congregation. And he was wondering about the ethics of actually getting some weapons so that they could protect themselves against an attack. And how much was an AK-47? And how could you actually ask the congregation to give to buy an AK-47? So he was having a huge conversation with God about this. And a little girl came by selling peanuts. And he said, oh, why aren't you in school? My mother can't afford me to send me to school, she said. I said, well, let me come and see your mother. And, let's, and I'll pay for you to go to school if your mother will allow it. So off he trots behind the little girl. And then he realized, oh, we're going into the Muslim quarter. So the little girl was a Muslim, and they were going into the Muslim quarter. And they looked, the mother wasn't there, so he spoke to the imam. So the imam wasn't quite sure about this, but he said he would talk to the mother about it, come back in a week's time. A week passed. And Hassan didn't really want to go back, but he thought he'd better go back and bring some closure to this, just so there were no loose ends. So off he goes. Anyway, the imam and the mother were there, and, and yes, they, they'd thought about it quite deeply. They would be happy for him to pay for the little girl to go to school. There was only one thing. She had four or five brothers and sisters. They would need to go as well. So he swallowed hard and said, okay. And then, but then they brought up the slightly tricky point that the father had five other wives, and they'd all got four or five children, and they needed to go to school. And at that point, he made a call to his bishop and said, I think I'm in over my head. The bishop was very gracious. Because the bishop had a principle that his clergy were out on the front line, and sometimes they might make a mess of things, but he was there to cover their backs. So he covered Hassan's back. And as a result of this, 20, 30 of these Muslim children started going to Christian schools. And I haven't got a picture because it didn't seem quite appropriate, but we actually went to visit the imam. 
And there is just such an open door into that Muslim community. But he never bought the AK-47. beginning of this year, the bishop gave him a new job and sent him to a different church, this one. Thought he needed a new challenge. This church had been utterly destroyed by insurgents. But Hassan is a man with a big vision. And so his vision is to rebuild the church, to develop a Bible school, and to reach out into the Muslim community. So, you know, five-year plan, mission action plan. So meanwhile, they are, they are, this, just, I took the photo from this angle so you could see the state of the roof. At the moment, his congregation is meeting in a, a hut that you or I would have pulled down. It made our old church rooms look quite good, actually, Pete. Uh, really made them look quite good. It was grim. But nevertheless, this is where this community of a few families were coming to worship week by week, to come for prayer and Bible study in the middle of the week, and to reach out into the Muslim community. And it just happens to be on the doorstep of the university. And so that reaching out to the students to bring them in, and they want to set up a Bible school. Great persecution, but tremendous vision. Not deterred. I mentioned the world media. Um, talks about the government defeating Boko Haram. If you've watched the world news, you might have picked up this week that as they've beaten, pushed Boko Haram back in the north, it's come to light, the absolute devastation of some of the communities. Although I read on the news tonight that the president of Nigeria was, was playing it down and saying that these stories were very over-egged. The insurgency of Bokum Haram, the attacks, and that of the Fulani in the Middle Belt, has created an in thousands and thousands of internally displaced people. Because they come in and they destroy a whole community. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But those who cannot flee are killed. And those who can flee are displaced. And then the insurgents take up occupancy of what was then their community. And people are terrified to go back. So there are adults all over Nigeria. It displaced people in camps with no home, no livelihood, everything gone. And there are also thousands of orphans. We went to an IDP camp where it was just children. In that camp, there were about 300 children who had either had their parents killed or their parent, they'd been separated from their parents so they had no family anymore. Meet goodness, David and Abednego. I don't know if you can see, I think you can, on goodness's face, the scars across here. Can you see them? Uh, on her face there, the scars there. And you can't see so much on Abednego, but he was scarred all the way around his head because those children had been hacked by machetes. They told us their story. Their eyes were expressionless, their voices were expressionless. They were just totally traumatized. They told us that the Falani came to their village and murdered their father. They shot him first in the leg and then in the head. 
their mother grabbed the baby and fled to safety. But these three children were left in the house. And they said the Fulani came in and hacked them with machetes. And this little chap, David, was shot in the stomach. And they were left for dead. And it was only because neighbours found them and got them to hospital um, that they've lived. We talked to other children, children who'd told of seeing their parents hacked to death, beheaded by Boko Haram. Where Open Doors are working in the north, they are um, setting up some trauma counselling. In this area where, where our partners work, there is no trauma counselling at all. Before we left, we met with an organisation that have done trauma counselling in Rwanda, and we're hoping that they're going to be able to come in and do some work with these children. On the same day as seeing those children, it was a, a very strange day for me, a very challenging day. We went out to some villages in the rural areas outside Josh. This picture here shows you the church where two or three hundred people, a bit like here, used to gather to worship. It's still standing, but the windows are broken, it's a shell, it's empty, because the villagers are gone, dead or dispersed. Only a few remain. Back in May 2015, one of the pastors talked to, talked to us. There were four villages, and each village had its own pastor. And... Um, it says here on the screen, the, pa the pastor of one of the villages was the first casualty. Uh, the, the pastor that met us and took us around and talked to us, he described what it was like, and he said for a couple of days he just sensed there was an attack coming. They'd sensed that there was a military training camp in the hills behind the villages because they heard the gunfire and all that was going on. And he sensed there was an attack coming. And he warned his family and he warned his villagers that they must flee. And most of them did, but some, re well, some of them did, but many remained, and he stayed. And we said to him, well, you knew it was coming, why did you stay? He said, I'm a shepherd, I'm a pastor. The shepherd doesn't leave his sheep. So he stayed, the pastors all stayed. And the first, the, um, the insurgent, he's described uh, early in the morning as they were getting up, the insurgents came over the hill, all dressed in black, and they were shouting as they came, Allahu Akbar. And their first casualty was a pastor who they killed. Only a few of the villagers remain there now. It's desolate, it's ghostly. You can see here the rubble and the ruins of homes destroyed. The Fulani have moved in and they have taken over nearby buildings. This was the pastor who showed us round, standing in the front of his home. Amazing, gracious man. But you could feel that there was something in the air. You could feel that there was still fear, there was still foreboding. And it's really strange because when we got there, there were all these cattle. And I said, OK, so who do these cattle belong to? Oh, they belong to the Fulani. Oh, okay, I wonder where they are then. Um, when you go off-road in Nigeria, you have to take a military escort with you. That was our military escort. Though I fancy that one man with an AK-47 wouldn't be much cop against uh, 
the conquering hordes. This is a spot at which you nearly lost one of your church wardens. Because what had happened, we came into the area to see and to hear the stories of the people and identify with them. And there were lots of these cattle and there were children and young people looking after the cattle and they ran off. And it it didn't feel too good, actually. And then Hassan, who was with us, he said, we should go now. We need to be out of this valley before it gets dark. We don't want an ambush. I thought, no, no, we don't really want an ambush. Um... Anyway, we, we left and we, we didn't rush, but we left and we went, we, we got out, returned. And then we had a phone call from one of the pastors to check that we got home safely. Because short, shortly after we'd left the area, Fulani came with guns shooting and we think they'd come looking for us. Was I scared? No, because I didn't really realize what was happening. But I did wonder about the ethics in our heads. How, you know, we believe God to protect us, but how can we believe God to protect us when people around are being butchered to death? How do you square that circle? And the only thing I could think was something, and I think it's true for us and it's true for Christians everywhere, if we're in the will of God, we have to believe that we are immortal until our work is done. And we have to put our our lives into the hands of the living God, whether we're driving down the M6, or whether we're out in somewhere like this. And actually, I was glad of the experience because it just brought home, this is the everyday lived reality for this. You know, women won't go shopping without a, you know, somebody with them with a gun. But we do not lose heart. Because those who are real Christians sign up for a faith that is worth living for and a faith that is worth dying for. As the passage in, uh, in, uh, that, that, uh, in Corinthians that Chris read, hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. So I'm conscious that time is pressing on, so I will just move on quickly. And, you know, as an expression of that not being, not losing heart, not being crushed, not in despair, the church is actually militant. The church is outgoing and outward-looking. Bishop Ben reminded us that back here in the 19th century, it was the church that brought reform. It was the likes of William Booth and William Wilberforce that changed society. And out there, it's the church that's providing health education, immunization, malaria prevention and treatment, because the government's failing, so the church is stepping in. But they need our help because they have not got the resources. And as people are being displaced and losing their livelihoods, they have not got resources to give to the church, so it's a vicious circle. So this was a little village we went out to. You can see we had to wade across a river. It's not too bad there, apart from the fact that I was a bit worried about what was in the water. Um, And these villagers were just so thankful. They'd been spared attacks in the last few years. And they were so grateful for the work of the church, uh, the community health program that was church-driven to come and bring malaria prevention, immunization to their village. This guy here wanted his picture taken because his wife, who is here, had miscarried so many times. And then once the health care program got put in and she got treated, they produced this healthy baby. 
but in the, in the, and, uh, but in the wet season, they can't get across that river. They, they can't get to the clinics if they're sick. Whoops. They can't get the children to school. And we know, don't we, that education is one of the most powerful tools in building communities. So if anybody fancies building a bridge, that's the place to go. But it's not just about health work and training pastors. The church is deeply committed to reconciliation, but seeing reconciliation between Christian and Muslim communities. And there, as here, we must draw the distinction between Muslim people and fundamentalist extremist terrorists. And so, and Hassan is uh, sort of the, the overseer of this. They've got this amazing project uh, of bringing Christian women and Muslim women together. There's a Muslim woman with her little girl and teaching them skills. You wouldn't believe that the clothes that they'd made, the jewelry that they'd made. But the miracle is not the skills they've been taught. The miracle is the fact that women from these two communities, where there is such suspicion, sit down and work together and eat together. Because normally you wouldn't eat, a Muslim and a Christian wouldn't eat together because you might get your food poisoned. The fact that they eat together is a mark of the reconciliation that's taking place and the empowerment. And uh, I have to, to show you this one. And uh, it's a pity Pat Bowden isn't here because um, this was the, the, the woman here who, we, who we'd met at the, the center. She said, you must, come back, you must come back to my community and you must see my restaurant. And she took us into a very dark and dingy alleyway in the, in the Muslim quarter. And she'd set up this little restaurant. Uh, entrepreneur, you know? And uh, that's her husband there, uh, which brings me on to the fact of the importance of actually... If we, we, talk, we talk a lot about empowering women, don't we, in, in community programs. But actually, you can empower the women, but you've got to win the hearts and the minds of the men as well, or it, there's going to be a disconnect. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that if you just empower women and you don't work with the men, actually levels of things like domestic violence increase because the men feel that uh, they're threatened. Um, so this was a group of boys that we had to speak to. I had to find something to say to them. Um, but it's about winning the hearts and minds. And one of the things that's happened in the non-Muslim communities, uh, you know, that, where there are people who are nominal Christians but not born-again Christians, some of the youth who are often fueled on drugs and alcohol, have taken the law into their own hands, developed vigilante groups, and actually um, taken part in reprisals against Muslim community. And that doesn't help reconciliation. So there's a lot of work being, having to be done there with some of the disaffected young men. And it was really interesting to talk to them. So... We also have mentioned we went up into Balchester. That was interesting. Lots more roadblocks because it's a Sharia law state. And 12 of the states in Nigeria are governed by Sharia law. You don't really want to get into trouble there, even as a Westerner. Um, but here, uh, the bishop we visited here, the same vision, the same passion for reconciliation between Muslim and community leaders. And... Uh, he is just amazing. And the work they've done, they've set up a school. The church has been burnt down. 
build another church. The insurgency level is even higher here than it is in, in Plateau State. Build another church, you're a target. So they've set up a school and they're employing <clears throat> Muslim teachers alongside Christians. But they're reaching out and actually, although it's a Christian school, 80% of the children are Muslims. And I'm saying, well, how do some of the Muslim community leaders feel about this? They want their children to come because it's their best education. So, so much work being done to build bridges and build understanding. And, you know, they say if they can make this work, it could be a model for many other places. People say Muslims and Christians cannot work together. We're going to show that they're wrong. So as uh, I wrap up, um, I just want to share with you really, the, finally, the challenges of Bishop Ben to us from heart, but also to the church in the West. And he says he believes that those of them who are alive, we, this is what his words, we believe that we who are alive, we survive on the wings and the prayers of saints around the world that we don't know and won't know till eternity. And he begged us, go and tell the stories of our conditions and expose the devil who wants to hide and suppress the sufferings of the persecuted church from the whole world. So tell. And then he said, keep praying that we will persevere with the mission of the kingdom. And finally, his charge to us is hold on to the biblical faith that is worth living for and worth dying for. So I'm sorry it's just a snapshot really, but I can just say that I was deeply challenged and have come back to think about many things, about how I live as a Christian in this next chapter of my life and what it means for me and what engagement with the persecuted church needs to look like. But most importantly, I think, the gospel that we preach and what our commitment to Jesus means for us. Thank you for listening. <clears throat>